like to remind you that if you are experiencing symptoms of a heart attack, stroke, or any life-threatening medical emergency, please call 911. Please do not delay seeking treatment during the COVID-19 epidemic. Most Providence emergency rooms are open, and CDC-required safety measures are being taken to protect patients and hospital staff. If you are unsure of your symptoms, please use our telehealth services and speak with a healthcare professional that can better assess your symptoms and provide direction on the best course of action. Please do not let the worry of COVID-19 cause delay in seeking out treatment if you are experiencing a heart attack or stroke. Every minute treatment is delayed can be fatal. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the future of health on Dash Radio during this coronavirus pandemic. We're lucky to have many experts around our COVID-19 topic and many guest hosts. Remember to visit coronavirus.providence.org for more information. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Well, it's great. It's great to, to be with everyone today. And I've got a very distinguished guest with me, Dr. Ari Robichev, who is um, our, our, really our chief data scientist uh, here at Providence St. Joseph Health. And uh, kind of been our lifeline through these last few months in terms of telling us what's going on, what's happening and what we should be doing. So Ari, it's great to have you here. And uh, it's, it's great to have you for about 20, 30 minutes to kind of explain, but maybe to start out for just a little bit about your background, about what you do and kind of where did you get to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um... Uh, you know, I, uh, it's kind of funny. I uh, got a job right out of high school working as what was supposed to be a data entry, um, like clerk at, for the Department of Anesthesia at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, where I lived. <laughs> and I, I showed up for the job on day one and the hiring manager was like, oh, so you're the programmer we asked for. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I thought it was a data entry job, which I knew I could do programming. I didn't know how to do. So he's like, well, you don't have a job. And I, I you know, I needed a job. So I said, look, is there like a, a book that I could use to learn whatever this programming language thing is? And so he took this like 2000 page book off his shelf and said, here's the book. You see, you can't just do that. And I said, like, give me, do, give me a week. And if I can't figure out what this thing is by the end of the week, then fire me. So he gave me a week and I ended up actually spending my summer coding a data um, entry and analysis system for the Department of Anesthesia at, you know, Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto back in the early 90s. And so I, I loved it. I, I loved working with data. I loved collecting data. And so... Um, you know, then I, I spent a bunch of years doing um, less data-oriented type research. I did respiratory physiology, where I built ventilator circuits, and I did um, during my infectious disease fellowship. I, I did a lot of work um, cloning antibiotic resistance genes, and I, I enjoyed all those things. I enjoyed um, particularly the scientific method and the process of, of trying to solve problems at, by asking the right questions. And um, when I finished my fellowship, I, I felt like I wanted to get back to the world of data because I, I had been so passionate about that. Um, and so I, 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 out of fellowship, I took a job at uh, North Shore University Health System in Chicago, which is a place that, uh, that at the time was one of the very few healthcare systems that was fully integrated on an electronic medical record system. Um, and I felt like, you know, there's going to be a ton of data there and it's all going to be really easy to use. Um, and of course I, 
you know, I learned very quickly that it was like water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. And so a lot <laughs> to do in my first few years was like cut my teeth on, on the world of figuring out how to actually work with the unruly mess that is healthcare data, even when it's collected in an excellent way using an excellent electronic medical record system. And But in that context, I started doing research related to um, building predictive models to help with clinical decision making. Um, I led a team that built an app called What's Going Around, which used EMR-based syndromic surveillance. Um, our communities understand what diseases were going around in that region, et cetera. And so for the last four years, yeah, sorry, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. I just wanted to say, because I think for most of our audience, they can't understand, you know, they know they have all this information, that there should be a problem with all this data. It's, it's, it should be like right there and easy to figure out. And maybe because you know, it's something we deal with every day. And I think a lot of the public feels like, why can't you guys just put this stuff together? It's all right there. And What's the answer to that question, right? Yeah, I, I don't think I have a one single answer to that question, but but a few parts to that answer include, number one, I wish that it was all right there in one place, right? As I think everybody's experienced, you know, you, you go to your doctor's office and you sit down and somebody hands you a clipboard and asks you to fill out like your family history, right? And you're like, I've done this a million times before. Why is somebody still asking me these questions? Um, and that happens everywhere. And a big part of that is, is not so much technological, but organizational and structural, right? We get our care in such a fragmented way. We go to so many different doctors. They're oftentimes parts of different systems. And oftentimes the data in these different systems just don't speak to each other well. So that's kind of category number one. You know, category number two has to do with just the challenges, technological, political, and legal of getting data from, you know, the different healthcare systems together. But then within even a single healthcare system, um, you know, I, I, I often um, use this example to illustrate some of the challenges we have in, in report writing. Imagine somebody comes to me and says, how many diabetic patients have we got inside our system? All right, well, first of all, what do you mean by diabetic patient? Do you mean somebody who's ever had a diagnosis of diabetes at least once? That might have just been a diagnosis associated with an order for a glucose test being done to rule out diabetes, right? Well, maybe it's it's on their problem list, but we know that problem lists aren't well maintained. Maybe it's um, right, and or somebody might have had diabetes temporarily or gestationally, and now it's gone away, but it's lingering on their problem list. Or do you look at encounter diagnoses for hospital visits, you know, et cetera, et cetera? Or do you look at which medications they're taking in combination with multiple events where they had the, you know, et cetera, et cetera? It turns oh, out no, no. that kind of thing is hard, right? And, and another thing that's very challenging is just to like, people believe oftentimes that there are, for everything in medicine, there's an absolute truth. You have pneumonia or you don't have pneumonia, right? But as you recognize as a clinician or you have rheumatoid arthritis or you don't, right? But oftentimes, especially in my world of infectious disease and in your world of rheumatology, there's there's like a, I think of it more as rather than as a, as a hard yes or no, there's a probability cloud, right? This right. might be juvenile right. rheumatoid arthritis. There's an 80% chance, but it could be something else too, right? And so oftentimes, even if you have every piece of information available to you in a chart, you still don't know for sure, does that patient have 
hospital-acquired pneumonia, ventilator-associated pneumonia, et cetera. So there are all of these different problems that make it actually really hard to, um, to extract data that we need to draw important conclusions out of EMR, which is why, you know, it, it takes, um, it, it takes a lot of expertise and I'm, and I'm incredibly fortunate to be part of a team that has an enormous amount of expertise in, uh, in working with this kind of data. Right, because then, then you know, I think that's a great tee up for uh, where we get to what I call a BC and AC, before COVID and after COVID. <laughs> uh, and, and the work that you were doing before COVID was, was really bringing a lot of this together for our seven hospital system and literally millions of patients and a lot of work on helping doctors understand how they practice and what they do and, you know, how do you... How do you help them with that? Maybe just describing a little bit before we uh, had COVID, what uh, what were some of the things that you were working on then? Sure. So um, some of the bigger projects, uh, one of them is something called the value-oriented architecture, which I know you're very familiar with, right? When we talk about value in healthcare, we're talking about the um, outcomes that we're getting and the cost that it requires to achieve those outcomes. And so um, one of the, the sort of fascinating and I think important challenges that we were dealing with is how do we marry together financial data with meaningful clinical data to help us understand across our system, how well are we doing at providing the best care at the lowest cost and learning from those providers who are managing to achieve that and disseminating their practices. Um, a lot of the work that my team's done has to do with supporting quality improvement. So if we're looking to reduce sepsis mortality, how do we identify um, variation in practice? How do we identify whether we're adhering to a three-hour bundle, a six-hour bundle? How do we discover why you know one particular one of our hospitals is experiencing really uh, favorable mortality rates and what are they doing differently than everybody else? So some of it has to do with that. A lot of our work has been around supporting our specialty services. So helping understand, um, you know, how to, uh, what can we do across that? Are we doing a good job across the system of implementing those things that we know reduce maternal mortality rate, for example? So those are kind of traditional types of things that we've been working on. And, and then we, we also, we're working on a few uh, kind of more out there things like um, a number of people on my team in collaboration with folks from uh, medical informatics have been working on a tool called CAKE, which stands for Caregiver Accessible Knowledge Engineering. The idea there is <laughs> democratizing clinical decision support. So allowing clinicians themselves in the context of their own practice to test creating alerts, reminders, messages that can go to their to nurses in their practices, et cetera, um, that they can build themselves without having to go through the IT infrastructure to see whether or not those things work. So basically allowing small scale tests of tests of change. Um, so those were some of the things that we were working on. Uh, it was fantastic. It was kind of bringing the providers together with the patients and really letting them really understand. Because I would say that half the time my assumptions are always proven wrong. And, uh, you know, because when you have the data and you look at it, it's always an aha moment that, wow, I would have presumed that this factor was the major reason why patients weren't doing well, but it's really this one. And really understanding all the variations in care and how it gets done. And I think the public is getting a real taste of that now because one of the, one of the things I hear from a lot of people, can't you guys just tell us? 
present. And, and it's different when you, know, you see the newscasters come on and say, great new breakthrough in a new drug. And those of us who are in our position say, well, well, maybe. You know, <laughs> because we kind of know like what are the possibilities given the data. So then all of a sudden COVID comes in and your team got to work like right on top of it. Maybe just saying, you know, the minute we had the outbreak, how you almost converted your whole team and all of your people into everything COVID and maybe what that process was all about and how much it helped us and others around our state and even around the country to understand how this virus works. Yeah, sure. Well, and before I talk about that, I, I just wanted to pile on to your interesting comment before about like the public is like, you know, what's with you guys? You're supposed to, you're supposed to know everything. You know, we understand as clinicians working on the inside that it's not like that. It takes us years to consolidate around this is the best practice for something. But here it's like we're inside a terrarium where the world is watching us learn as we go. This, <laughs> this is always what the process is like, right? But it's accelerated and everybody's watching us. Uh, but yeah, my my wife, um, you know, after after really getting to know me and getting to know the work that I was doing in the lab, once said like, science is an inexact science, um, and it's and it's unfortunately true. So so COVID, um, you know, I I happen to be an infectious disease doctor, and and so as soon as the reports uh, began to come out of China, I got very interested in ways that um, our clinical analytics team could contribute if um, COVID became a going concern it, you know, in an area around which we had data. And so actually the first thing that we started to do was to build a syndromic surveillance tool that allowed us to use data from the notes um, that describe the interactions our clinicians have with our patients um, to extract features from those notes that we thought might be useful in identifying COVID cases. And this is, you know, learning on the fly. The very th first thing we built was a way to identify that a doctor mentioned that a patient had been to Wuhan. You know, that, that, was, our, that was the first that was thing. <laughs> yeah, not so relevant now, right? But there's a, there's a ton that we've learned. And um, so very quickly we were able to use that natural language processing. And by the way, um, I'll just say about natural language processing that you know we collect a lot of data in our EMRs in structured fields. So you know a lab result is a structured field, a diagnosis that a clinician writes into what is the patient's diagnosis bar. That's a that's a structure, structure. right? But, that's really important. I think for our audience to understand that, and because that you know those are things, those are data elements you can pull out. Everyone knows what they are. But the majority of the data is where you're going, Ari, right? It's exactly. Just to give you a sense of scale, we looked at this recently. We generate at inside our healthcare system 700 million clinical notes every year. And so the question is, right, the better part of a billion notes every year, and we're mostly leaving that information on the table because it's... Right. It, locked in some blob of text somewhere, but there's such incredible richness to that. And so one of the things that, that we wanted to try to do early on was figure out how we could use that richness to identify what's going around in our communities in terms of COVID. And, and so, yeah, sorry, you're going to ask something. No, no, no. Go right to it. No, no. You're yeah, right yeah. Right there. 
So the first thing that, that we did was we built tools to extract data from these millions of notes to help us figure out what's going around. And, and we decided to build a, a registry. Um, and, and so because we had begun the work of planning this registry before COVID was in the US, we were able to stand it up very quickly. And within about two weeks of our, of our first case landing, we um, had stood up this registry that had within it about 60 million patient encounters, right? That's not that we've cared for 60 million patients with COVID, but we needed um, the control data. So we need to understand what patients are presenting with when they don't have COVID to help distinguish COVID patients from the non-COVID patients. And so very quickly, we had stood up this registry that had about 60 million patient encounters in it from the last several years that had hundreds of different pieces of information about our patients, including um, what signs and symptoms they presented with. So that very quickly, we were able to start creating heat maps of, our, of the regions in which we care for patients to help us figure out um, what's going on. Um, and of course, we... Um, then started thinking about, well, now how can we use that data to predict surges inside our hospitals? And so as we stood up this data platform, um, in addition to figuring out how to characterize the local epidemiology, we realized very quickly that there was this need for um, now casting, basically, like what's happening inside our hospitals right now. So the next thing that we built, and so the first thing that we built, the epidemiology tool was, was kind of when COVID was theoretical. Once it hit, and it hit, you know, very quickly, and all of a sudden there was this massive organizational need for data about um, what's happening in our hospitals right now. What's our bed capacity? What's our vent capacity? How many labs are we able to do? What's our turnaround time on our labs? You know, what kind of outcomes are our patients experiencing? How long are they staying in the hospital? Are they being vented? How long are they being vented? Like, there was this tsunami of critical questions that landed. And so, again, I'm just incredibly grateful for the, the super, super smart and dedicated individuals who I work with who were able to, in a very short space of time, pull together a data framework that allows us to then build tools on top of it to start answering those questions. And so just for a sense of scale, um, one of the tools that we built is a, is a um, situational awareness dashboard that is very simple. It just shows you right now, how many people do you have in the hospital who have COVID? How many of them are on mechanical ventilators? How many of them are on telemetry? How has that trended over time? And in the last couple months, that has had some, um, some 60,000 views from across our healthcare system. So people are really using these tools. Yeah, in my world, that's a, that's a lot of views. Um, so people are really, truly using these tools. So, so we, yeah, sorry. Isn't it true with that too, just for, for folks that you start to discover what works and what doesn't work? Yes. And as you start to see that whole population, well, if we do this, this, and this, we're getting a better outcome. Maybe just have that process also, because you guys are doing some publishing coming off of just what our experience has been. Yeah, absolutely. So, so part of what's been so fascinating about this real-time learning is um, this is to, to a point you were making earlier about, you know, 50% of your assumptions turn out to be false. So one of my initial assumptions coming into this was that a high proportion, maybe 30% of patients would need to go on mechanical ventilators based on what we were seeing out of China. And that was exactly what we saw. The first two weeks of caring for COVID at Providence, I was exactly right. It was on the nose, 30% of patients went on mechanical ventilators. Now we're down to closer to 10% of our patients are going on mechanical ventilators. We have enormously pivoted our practice 
And I'm convinced that that's coming from clinicians learning on the fly about what works and what doesn't work. We've also seen a decrease in the mortality. So we're using less intensive care, but we're actually seeing better clinical outcomes. So we are clearly learning on the fly. And some of that has to do, I believe, with medications that um, we're in the process of testing both through clinical trials and through kind of more interesting and maybe intellectually challenging through retrospective analyses. So looking at the last thousand patients that we cared for, seeing who got drug X, who didn't get drug X, and does it look like drug X is helpful. And so we've been doing a lot of work around that as well. But I, but I do think that it's more than just the meds that are leading to these um, what look like better outcomes in, in patient care. And I, and I really think that that's part of what's been so extraordinary in the system is just watching clinicians learn. I'd like to think that some of the data that we've provi been providing on clinical outcomes has been contributing to that. But, um, but more than that, it's really our, our sort of our networks um, that bring clinicians together and allow them to learn from each other. And the extreme hunger that there is among our clinicians to figure out this is a brand new disease. How do we manage it? So, so we, we've, been, we've been learning a lot, but we still have so many questions. Like I, you know, my background is in infection control and I feel like we have so many important questions around, you know, now that, now that we start reopening to do the work that, you know, we need to provide to our communities, how do we do that in a way that's safe to our caregivers and safe to our patients? And I think there's tremendous opportunity for us to effectively be um, you know, a learning health system and a living laboratory for for figuring out what are the best ways to do that, because nobody knows that today. So tell me about also there's a, a couple of there's a clinical interface with um, with data. But then how are you putting together the testing data that we're doing? Because that's been a big question for the whole country. Uh, antibodies or antigens or PCR. So how can you help us try to figure some of that out? to put some science to what seems to be, you know, a, you know, a frustrating area, I think, for everyone. Yeah, so um, a few things. Uh, so number one, I, I just finished with a collaborator at the University of Chicago, a study where we looked at all of the PCR tests that we did. So that's the diagnostic test to figure out whether somebody has it right now. And um, we used information on patients who were tested multiple times to help figure out What's the sensitivity of the test? Meaning, how good a job does the, if somebody has COVID, how good a job does the test do of identifying that they have COVID? Um, so that's an example of, of sort of real world evidence that we're working on. There's an amazing serological study, so an antibody study that's happening um, system wide, but that's been led by a group in 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 Oregon that has tested at this point um, some ten thousand of our caregivers to figure out whether or not they have antibodies, meaning whether or not they've actually acquired COVID. And 5,000 of those individuals have been serially tested, meaning they were tested once, and then a few weeks later they were tested again. And so what we're working on is finding ways to bring together data from the EMR to figure out, okay, this, this anesthesiologist was tested on this date, was retested a month later, and how many COVID patients did they intubate between test number one and test number two, and can we use that to help us understand what is, what is the risk of intubating a COVID patient? And that's something that I think we're going to be able to do on a much larger scale as we as we build together this kind of network of data um, on um, what kinds of encounters our caregivers have had with which patients over time. I, I also think we're going to be able to. Yeah, sorry. 
no, 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 you go. Go, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think we can also contribute to learning from our communities. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we're seeing is we can identify when clusters are occurring inside our communities because of the test data that's coming back to us. And sometimes I believe that that's unknown in those communities. You know, we, for example, can tell when a patient comes to our ED for whatever reason, and they come from an address where somebody else at that address has been COVID positive, right? Our, our EMR knows that. And right. so we can, we can harness that data. And what, so we look back to see how often when those patients who come to us from an address where there is COVID, how often they an answer the question, have you been exposed to somebody with COVID? Yes. Right. And the answer is it's a minority of the time. Um, so I right. think oftentimes people don't know that they're being exposed, right? And, and which raises fascinating questions about how, how can we best serve our communities and serve um, you know, public health as well as a health system. Because there's this whole issue that, you know, uh, there are a lot of asymptomatic carriers that are shedding virus before they have symptoms, which makes it even more challenging as we go. And how do you put that puzzle together? And then the, the other question I had for you, there's that one. And then it's also we're seeing the uh, uh, evidence of some new syndromes and particularly the one that a lot of folks are probably interested in now are the ones in children that almost seem to be a reactive phenomenon post-COVID infection. Any yes. thoughts that you're seeing in, that, in those areas? Well, you know, I, I guess what I would say is I think that we need um, better ways of tracking longitudinally than we do today. And actually, there's a project that I'm, I'm really, really excited about. So we've been talking with one of our partners. Uh, they're a technology company called Twistle. Um, and they specialize in patient engagement and helping patients, for example, in the, uh, the, around the time that they undergo surgery to sort of prepare for the surgery and then understand what to expect over time, and they're engaged through their, their mobile device. And so um, together with uh, Aaron Martin's Digital Innovation Group, um, I've, we've been having conversations about using their platform as a way of basically identifying COVID positive patients and giving them an opportunity to participate basically in citizen science and journal what they're experiencing over time, probably daily for the first couple of weeks and then monthly for a number of months after that, so that we can actually discover what, what are the manifestations and do certain manifestations early in the disease predict that you're going to do well or predict that you're going to have you know, long-standing problems afterwards. These are all questions we don't know. I've been I've been selling this to them as the creating using citizen science to create the the Harrison's um, you know entry on the subject. Right? It's it's right. a new disease, and why why can't we use new technologies to to discover how they behave? I'm very well, excited. I, I, I think the two of us. I could probably talk to you for five hours, and I would love to get to a point. But it just shows, I mean, the whole area of data science and how important it is in, in everything that we do. Uh, last thing, you've been doing a lot of collaboration with colleagues like yourself around the country, both in the federal government, in the state government. Tell us how that some of that's working, because ultimately a lot of us believe that till we can kind of get this network of uh, concerned clinicians together, that we're going to actually be able to do a better job in terms of understanding what's going on. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we need to find ways to collaborate, um, to pool data. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we started talking with talking about was syndromic surveillance, right? So we can produce heat maps that of the regions where we care for patients showing what's going on. And I believe, and we're testing this, helping us predict how busy our hospitals are gonna be a few weeks in advance. But, um, you know, what's frustrating about looking at those maps is, you know, they cover the West Coast of the United States pretty well, but what about the rest of the United States, right? Need, we need to right. be able to collaborate to do that. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to um, have been able to start collaborations with colleagues at the University of Chicago and MIT and UC Berkeley around um, thinking about how to use our data sets to help answer uh, some of these really, really important questions. Like one project that I happen to be super excited about is one where um, we're collaborating with folks on the question, can we use computer vision um, and machine learning applied to a patient's presenting chest x-ray, so the first chest x-ray we do on them, to help predict respiratory deterioration, that kind of a that sudden um, problem getting oxygen into themselves that happens sort of several days in for some patients. And so there's, there's I think you're right, a ton of opportunity to, to collaborate with um, governmental and academic groups. Well, it's so fantastic having you. I think, uh, you know, you're, you're a rock star for our health system. And uh, I think it really just points out a whole bunch of issues in terms of what we need to do in healthcare. The, I, you know, if there is an upside of this whole pandemic, it's one that I think the appreciation for the work that you and your colleagues are doing and how important it is to, uh, you know, betterment and figure out where we are because we're, we've got a long slog just through COVID and then beyond that. So uh, we'll, we'll be checking in with you often. And uh, you are uh, someone who I think every morning in our health system at 7.30, everyone always appreciates your report to understand how we're doing and what we're doing. So thank you so thanks. much for everything. Thanks, Rod. Time.